All right, well, let me begin by reading our passage. I'll pray for us, and then we will talk about this great passage. Genesis chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness and the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son and shall call his name Ishmael. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well is called Ber Laha Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Berid. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old, and Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Let's pray. Lord, we come before your word, and we ask, God, by the supernatural work of the Spirit, that you would help us to see uh, who you are, that you are a God who is gracious to sinners, that you know us and you love us. And so, Father, we pray that this text would... Um, confront us, it would challenge us, but ultimately that it would point us to Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. I love this passage for a lot of reasons. It's a passage about what do you do when things don't go your way? How do you respond? It's a passage about God's grace to the marginalized and to the oppressed. It's a passage really about us. It's a passage that echoes the story we read in the garden where sin first entered. There's some really interesting things. I, matter of fact, I preached on this passage a few days ago to middle schoolers, and I got caught up, and I laughed in verse 4. He went into Hagar. Uh, even the pastor think that's funny. Uh, what a unique way of saying that. <laughs> and it said it twice, man. Okay, the first time, okay, but like, again? Um, some interesting things here, right? And, and we'll get to it, but uh, when, I, when I read this story, I'm reminded when I was a kid, one of my favorite things my mom would make was, was banana bread. 
nice warm banana bread with some butter on it. And matter of fact, I'm like a traditionalist. I, I don't really care for it when you put chocolate chips in it because most of the time people do it wrong and the chocolate chips just sink to the bottom. And it just makes it just kind of whatever. And I just like just good banana bread. And so I would every once in a while notice if like we had like three or four bananas left over and they started getting pretty um, like unripe. They get the bruises on it. And, and I, I knew what that meant. We're going to have banana bread. And I would tell my mom, like, hey, look at the banana. She's like, yep, we'll make banana bread tonight. And I'm like six, right? And we're making the, the, the batter, and I'm all excited. And we put it in. And like five minutes later, I'm like, all right, let's eat it. She's like, no, 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 no. She has a timer. It's like 45 minutes. I'm like, 45 minutes to make banana bread? And I remember like um, just staring at it. We had the, like, you know, like handy little ovens. They have the lights where you can like see it. And I'm, like, watching paint and dry, like, you know. And I'm, like, come on, come on. So impatient, so impatient, so impatient. Okay, like, it gets to, like, five minutes. Okay, all right, we're almost there, we're almost there. Okay, one minute, right? And I'm, like, doing, like, a countdown. Ten, nine, eight, right? So timer goes off. You get the whole knife trick. You stick it in, and if it comes out clean, you know, you're probably good. She's, like, oh, no, I think we need five more minutes. You know, just freaking out. Like, what the heck, okay? Five more minutes, knife trick again, or toothpick maybe even. Okay, she pulls it out. I'm like, all right, let's do it. She's like, oh, no, no, this needs to cool for probably a good half hour. I stare my mother in her eyeball and say, give me some now. I don't, I don't know what I said. I'm just kidding. I was, I was upset, right? So she leaves. In five minutes, looks fine. Mm-hmm. Looks fine, right? Get a knife, right? Start cutting it. What happens? No, mom sees me. <laughs> uh, I can take care of myself. I'm zigs, right? Come on. Mom sees me, puts it up, and says, "Because you did that." Now you have to wait till tomorrow. Oh, my heart broke. My heart broke, okay? What do you do when you become impatient? Take matters in your own hands? Become frustrated, irritated, sad? Are you someone just kind of a go-getter? Things aren't really happening? You don't like the way your, your life is going? You don't like the circumstances? Maybe you complain a lot? Become really critical, really apathetic. The second when we played that game earlier, I thought like people were like, oh, I'm bad. My God, you're being a high school girl. I mean, it's bad. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was a mean joke. I'm kidding. I do not think of you that way. I really don't. More middle school girls. Right? <laughs> um, what, what, what do you do when, when things don't go your way? I don't know if that's even a thing you've thought through, if you you even could be self-aware enough to think about it. But typically, when things aren't going well, um, we have two options as Christians, as people who want to follow God. We can be people of faith, who trust God, who say, man, this isn't going the way I thought it was, God, or God, life isn't really the way I I hoped it would be, but I'm going to trust you that you are in me and you are in this. Dum, dum, dum. Yeah. 
By the way, a lot of times when you guys walk out of the door, it gets left open. The door is always open. It's always open. Like, not right now, but typically. Um, and all the cold air just rushes in, and that thing turns on. I'm just saying. Anyways. But when things don't go our way, we can either do one or two things. We can either trust God and say, God, this is hard, but you are in me, and you're in this. Or we can kind of just loosely talk about God and kind of, kind of with this, but really... We just kind of do things that we think are going to fix the problem. We want to be the fixers to our life's problems. And that is what leads us to the story, right? God has given a promise to Abram. And what is that promise? That Abram, through you, you are going to have a great nation. Matter of fact, Abram, go ahead and look up at the stars. And if you're able to count how many stars there are, that's how great of a nation is going to come through you. And through this nation, all the families will be blessed. It's a pretty great promise. But what's the problem? Look at verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Pretty hard to start a nation when you don't have kids, right? Pretty hard to start that multiplication process if you don't got other people to do it. So immediately... You know, I don't know, movies typically, they give you the introduction. And I know this is kind of a revolving story, but this little narrative right here, it starts the issue right away. There's a problem. That God made a promise, but now it's been 10 years. Right? I had a hard time waiting 45 minutes. They, they've they been given a promise. They've now been in the land for 10 years. Hey, God, I, I, we get this the whole idea where you don't work in our timing, but 10 years, bro. It's been 10 years. And so Sarai has this idea. Look at verse 2. She says, hey, look, Abram, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. (laughs) There it is. Go into my servant. (laughs) It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Now, we have a hard time imagining that. But back then, ancient Near East culture, this was actually a common thing. Matter of fact, if you flip forward but don't do it, to Genesis 37 one of Jacob's sons, 12 sons, the name of Judah. It's a really, really interesting story. Maybe like the first time I read it in the Bible, I said, I am not reading this right now. Like one of those stories in the Bible where you're like, this is in the Bible. This story's in the Bible. But what happened was Judah had three sons and his oldest son has a wife named Tamar. And Tamar kind of seems to be someone who kills off husbands because her first husband judah's oldest son dies and so judah comes to his second son and says hey middle son i'm a middle son by the way go sleep with your brother's wife in order that she can have children for your older brother and you can read the rest of the story because it's really weird but in that sense what he's saying like the oldest son should have like the lineage should have the error right and so we kind of have a children, have a child for her. And so the same idea is playing out here in ancient Near East culture. Hey, it won't be me. It won't be biologically my child, but it will kind of be my child. Weird, I know, but that's the thought process. So what they're kind of proposing here wasn't uncommon in the time. But what was the promise? It wasn't for Abram and a servant. It's for Abram and Sarah. So in essence, what are they doing here? They're becoming impatient and they're taking matters into their own hands. 
And here is really what we get to see. When we doubt God's goodness, when we doubt his promises, when we don't like his timing, we walk into unbelief, and this unbelief, this pride, shows itself in a few different ways. And so what I want to do for us briefly is show us how each of the three characters in the story uniquely show their pride and their unbelief of God's promises. So we have three people. Let's take Hagar. Okay. So do me a favor. Go ahead. Look at verse 4. Wow, we're starting right there again. Maybe if I just keep talking about it, it'll get better. I don't think so. Okay. Verse 4. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Now, who's her mistress? Sarah or Sarai. So the idea of contempt in Hebrew really is that in her heart, she had a curse. She's cursing Sarah in her heart. So here's the thing. If you're a slave and you're told, hey, go sleep with my husband and give him a child so that we can have a great name for ourselves. I can't do it, but you can. It's kind of a weird thing to be asked. Like, hey, I know you own me and all, but... There's certain things I'm not going to do, right? But it happens. She conceives. And what does she do? She probably doesn't even say anything to her. But it's kind of one of those things where you kind of look at someone like, I'm better than you. Right? I, I don't... Sometimes you just, you're around certain people. They just have this error about them. They don't have to say it. They're, they're, they're just communicating by their by their presence and their stance, like, like the way they look at you, like, like this guy, right? Like my, my, not that my cousin would ever listen to us because I don't think she's a Christian, um, but I had this cousin who was like a month older than me and she'd be like, okay, sweetie, that's all right. <laughs> Did you just call me sweetie? And she'd be like, honey, I, and we're like 16. Mind you, like, maybe if we were five, okay, it's kind of, like, endearing, right? Like, my cousin's taking care of me, right? But we're, like, 16-year-olds. She's like, uh, okay, honey, I, okay. Like, like the, oh, my gosh. If you were a boy cousin, we are throwing down right now. Like, I will punch you in the mouth. Like, like so it got so bad. Like, literally so, so bad. Like, I just, like, wanted to pull my hair out. Like, I have never been more retaliated, like, Monte, Count of Monte Cristo, like Revenge of the Lord, that's long gone, right? That's long gone, okay? I'm just scheming, plotting. What, what can I do, okay? It's like 3 a.m. My eyes are wide awake. I, I cannot, I'm so mad at her. My, I, I'm like, and I, it's just like a robot. I was possessed for a minute. Literally, I get up, I just like, I, I wake up, I just walk straight to the kitchen at my aunt's house, get the pitcher, turn the sink on. <laughs> Turn the sink off. Walk to her bed. <laughs> just like throw the thing. I go. I, I go straight back to bed. Right. She like free, starts crying. Literally like my grandma, my parents, my cousins. Like we're all going to Knott's Berry Farm the next day. There's like 25 people in this house. Like they all thought a freaking earthquake happened. Like and like. <laughs> The one cousin near her kind of came up to me and started kicking me because she knew that we were mad at each other. And I, my, my parents, like, 
like everyone was like three in the morning, so like they finally got her like dressed and she's calmed down. My parents like like first thing in the morning take me. I'm like, you say whatever you want to me, I will never take it back. <laughs> I would do it again. You, I was like, ground me, punish me, do whatever you want. She deserved it. <laughs> right? My dad looks at my mom. This is so unscripted, but I just have to tell you like this is. My dad looks at my mom and says, "Leave him alone. Don't do it again." <laughs> right? Like. It's like, you know, like, yeah, my man, oh, just a, a little bit like my wife's like, I really like your cousin. No, you don't. No, you don't like my cousin because I don't like my cousin. Which means, but I love my cousin. There's a difference there, right? But like, in essence, like that, that smugness of like, I'm better than you. I can do things like, I don't know, like. Sometimes it's hard, like, I study for a test, and the person next to me doesn't study. And, you know, there's a gracious way of saying, like, you know, like, uh, there's things that come natural to me, I'm sure there's things that come natural to you. Or there's just, like, I'm better than you. And then that's, that's the kind of pride that she, that, that's like the, the more blatant type of pride that we see in a lot of people, right? If you watch athletes, you watch boxers, like, the way they, they try to, like, stand above each other and all this stuff. And it's, it's really ugly, it's destructive because here's a great verse in the book of Ruth. Do you want to know who actually allows babies to be conceived? God. Yeah, God. God is the source of all life. And so for Hagar here to kind of tower over her, you know, her mistress is really just, just to kind of like blatantly say like, I'm awesome on me. And what happens? It creates a lot of dysfunction. You know, guys, listen, some of you have natural abilities and talents that others in this room can't do. And I'm sure we all went around, we all different gifts, and we all different passions, and there's things that we're good at, and some people maybe even practice a little bit more of some of their desires. But, but here is what's always wrong. To think that just you, by you, that you're just naturally better at people. Let me tell you something. Every unique thing about you is because God gave it to you. Which is why we sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. God is the one who gives life. So we don't compare. We don't think we're better than each other. We actually, in humility, consider the interests of others more important than ourselves, as Christ would. So that's Hagar. That's her dysfunction. But now Sarai, she's not really happy either. And she has her own dysfunction too. This is kind of um, really interesting here. Look at verse 5. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. Now this is this is rich here, right? This is this is this is like straight up insane. Because whose idea was all of this? Hers. And she's like, Abraham, it's your fault. Come again? You're the one in the master plan of all this. Now you're blaming. So what is, what's her way of showing pride? Blame shifting. Think back to the garden for a second. What, what do we see when they're confronted with their sin? It was her. Blame shifting, right? There's this natural sense of when anytime the spotlight is on you, any insecurity, we want to deflect. Any failure 
What do we want to do? We want to justify ourselves. Anytime someone's upset with you, what do you want to do? You want them to understand why you did what you did, right? We have a hard time of just saying, hey, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? We are always blaming the teacher for the bad grade, right? It's never, it's never just us, right? By the way, my parents would never for a second ever take my side. Well, mom, it's Mr. Hanson. No, it's not. It's you. You didn't even hear what I was going to say. I don't need to, Aaron. It's always you. Like, my parents like, are not the kind of parents now that I hear about where they're always at the teacher and whatever. Like, no, no, no. My parents would say, like, hey, I'm really sorry for my son. Like, that's the kind of parents my... But, but I, at times, they're like, oh, I got to see in that class, right? To kind of cover up. I feel insecure about it, feeling dumb or something. What do I do? That teacher just isn't good at teaching. It's her fault. Or I overcut the class by two times because I didn't like the class. It's my fault. And sometimes because we don't like being in the wrong, we don't like being insecure, we don't like people thinking they're better than us, defensively, you know what we do? We kind of put up walls. We take the light off of us. We deflect because we don't like to be vulnerable. We don't like it when people kind of make themselves look better than us. We don't like having to submit to our parents. We, don't, we want to be safe. We want to feel like people like us. And so we will do anything we can to get people off of us. And sometimes, you know, I, I'll see some of you guys, right? I'll try to talk to you. I'll ask maybe a sensitive question. And this invisible wall goes up. You kind of shut down. You begin to look away. You begin to not want to talk. You kind of give like half truths. You deflect. So you're already just very direct. I don't want to talk to you about this, right? And and kind of a little bit that that just shows our unbelief. It shows the pride of our sin that that we don't think that we're the problem, and we don't want you touching this. So that we put up a wall, or we shift, we blame other people for our problems. But really, what's really interesting is it's blatantly clear. That Sarah here is the reason for this mess. But what does she want to do? Now it's someone else's fault. One of the best things I could tell you, practically speaking, if you're ever in an issue and there's a conflict or a problem and the other person is 98% in the wrong and you're only 2% in the wrong and you feel like you have nothing to apologize for but they're coming at you, let me just tell you something. Just own the 2% that's yours. Say, hey, you know, I really apologize for that. I'm sorry for my part. Will you forgive me? Even if they're 98%, your your temptation is to want to just put it on them. No, this is all you. Just just, just realize that most of the time, it always goes two ways. Every situation I've heard with two people, hearing both sides of the story, I've kind of always found that there's probably wrong on both ends. Now, one person might be more wrong, but there's probably always wrong on the other side, too. Just own up to it. Just admit it. Admit to Hagar. Hey, uh, this might have been a bad idea, but can we learn to work together in this? I think that would have been the right response of trusting God. And lastly, Abram. He's not, guilt- he's not guiltless either. What does he do? Look at verse 6. This should also remind us of the garden. 
But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. What's his way of showing pride and unbelief? Super passive. And, and honestly, he's like typical male right here, right? Like, drama between girls? <laughs> Dad. Babe, whatever you think you need to do, you should do that. <laughs> right? Like, modern translation of like, I don't want any of this, right? This is all bad. So, I'm going to turn around. You do whatever you feel like you need to do. We're good, right? But what, what should have Aaron's response been? To protect and to care for the servant, for Hagar. But instead, he lets his wife become a crazy maniac where she is pregnant, but she would rather be destitute than be under the, the, the bad care of Sarah. See, back even in the garden, when the serpent is talking to Eve, where's Adam? Right? He's just not leading. He's not in charge. He's just kind of doing his own thing. And so typically, too, when sin is involved, we don't want to take responsibility. We don't want to get active. We want to just kind of say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. But it is a big deal. Take responsibility for your actions. Seek to do what is right. Repent. Apologize. Get in the middle of people. Reconcile parties, right? Right? We live in a big culture where now, because everything, every issue is so polarized, no one actually wants to stand up for stuff when there's wrong. We want to be like, oh, I don't want any part of this. Because we're afraid that if we actually step up and try to do the right thing, that people are going to attack us. And that isn't right either. That is actually showing that you care more about yourself than for others. So with all of this, this is a big hot mess, okay? Like this is dysfunctional with a capital D, right? There is all this pride and all this sin and all of these issues and God made this promise. And you would think God would look down at these people and say, like, what did I do? But here we actually, in this passage, through this function, here's what we get to see. The heart of God. The true heart of God. Let me tell you what the heart of God is. The heart of God is a God who cares about the marginalized, the oppressed, the poor, the slave, the weak, we see a God who goes after those who no one cares about. Let's read about it. Look down at verse seven. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. So this is Hagar. She's like, screw this, I'm leaving. I don't like this anymore. Verse eight, and he said to her, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And um, he kind of gives her this little poem. Behold, you'll have a son, Ishmael, and all the you know, people will be against him. And so look down verse 13. This is really interesting. So she called the name of the Lord. She called the name of the Lord. She gave a name to the Lord. That's kind of interesting, right? And what name? You are a God of seeing. She gave, she ascribed God a name. So, in essence, she's kind of like giving an attribute to God. And what is that attribute? You're a God who sees. 
Literally in Hebrew, the name for God here is El Roy. E-L meaning God and Roy, R-O-I, the God who sees. See, every good parent at some point will have to sleep. Every good parent can't keep a watchful gaze over their children. Even good parents that sometimes turn their back and their children get hurt. But the thing about God is that he is always intimately watching and caring for those who no one cares about. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is just just the simple verse that God knows every single hair on your head. God knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're in between classes. Matter of fact, God knows so much, he knows what you think. He knows what you're feeling. He knows when you're low. He knows when you're willing at times to just doubt his goodness and his promises and take matters into your own hands. He knows when you're being that kind of person like my cousin Kaylee who looks at everyone else like they're beneath them. He knows when you're just super passive and you don't care. And he knows when you put up those defensive walls because you're really scared to let people into your life. And guess what? He still leans in. He still initiates. And he cares. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, there's all these different laws that God inscribes for the people who have no rights. He would tell the Israelites to say, hey, at the edge of your field, make sure you leave a bunch of food for the foreigner, for the sojourner, for the poor. Why? Why does God go so far out of his way all through the Old Testament to talk so much about the poor, to talk about those who are being chased into destitution? Why does God care to meet with someone who's just an Egyptian hand servant? Want to know why? Here's why. Let me tell you why. Because people like the poor and the marginalized and oppressed are perfect examples of what it looks like to be someone in the kingdom of God. Because the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed and people like Hagar demonstrate to us that by ourselves we can do nothing, that we need help. And so here's the thing. God has always wanted his people to demonstrate how they themselves have been treated. That I was helpless and destitute and alone and dead in my sins. But what has God done? He has reached down in his amazing grace and he has saved us. And so therefore, since we are so poor spiritually and God has made us rich in Christ, we are also in the same way to care about those who can't help themselves. God has always been a God who cares about the small person. Imagine for a second. The God who creates everything, the God who has power over every single thing, every atom, just the complexities of our, of our world. God notices a little teenage girl all by herself and cares and cares. You know, I, we live in a world where we have social media and we have friends constantly. We're always doing things. You know, it's interesting in big cities like Tokyo, in Chicago, in New York, surrounded by millions and millions of people. 
But do you want to know what the one thing that most people struggle with? Loneliness. How is it that we're always surrounded by people, yet deep down in our hearts we feel like no one really cares? We're well-connected. We have friends, we have people. We know, we know that they love us. We know. But yet sometimes there's this hole in our heart. And I think that hole is God-shaped. Do me a favor. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 123. I think all this passage really leads me back to this one psalm, showing us really the heart of God. The God who sees, the God who cares, the God who notices us. I think the psalmist really understood this in the psalm of a sense. It says this, to, to you I lift my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Okay, again, that idea of enthroned is that God is high above. So high, he's made everything, he made all the stars. The God who's enthroned in the heavens, what does he say? Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of the mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. I, I, I'm so sorry, I'm reading the wrong psalm here. Psalm 121. At first it sounded right, then I'm like, nah, this is a little different actually. <laughs> psalm 121. Also to do with eyes, that's why I was confused. Um, psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Here it is. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not sleep. He will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And here it is. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Elroy, the God who sees, is the God who will establish you, who will keep you, who knows you, who cares for you. And the best thing about our God is he's not a God of empty promises, but a God who demonstrates. And he demonstrates his keeping us and his loving us and his care by coming to be a man, by dying on the cross for our sins. So guys, listen. In life, there's going to be times where you're tempted to take things in your own hands. You're tempted to say like, hey, I don't need God. I'm going to just figure it out on my own. But listen, God sees you and he cares. Trust him. Obey him. Because when we don't and we take matters in our own hands, you know what happens? A lot of dysfunction. A lot of pride. A lot of things that just begin to unravel and just cause more hurt and pain. But to live a life in which we know that God sees us and he cares, do you know what we can do? We can actually, with hearts of confidence and full faith, say, listen, I know this is hard, but God sees me. He is in me and he is in this. He is in me and he is in this. Elroy, don't ever forget it. Let's pray.
God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise that you see us, that you know us, and that you care for us, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we would continually fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the champion of our faith, knowing, Lord, that Christ sees and knows all things about us. Let that not be a warning or a threat, but that may not be just a, a word of encouragement. And so, Lord, I just pray for the students here tonight who maybe at times feel lonely, maybe at times feel forgotten or unnoticed. Lord, I just pray that they would be comforted by Elroy, the God who sees, who knows them, who made them, and who wants a relationship with them. God, help us to abide more and more in Christ. Help us, Lord, to be your servants. We pray this in your name. Amen.